Hello, everybody. Welcome on the Lights On Data Show. Today we have with us the amazing Kent Graziano, aka the Data Warrior, who's a recognized industry thought leader, award-winning speaker, author, and semi-retired Snowflake Data Cloud and Data Vault evangelist with too many decades in the industry to count. He's a Data Vault master, Knight of the Oak Table, Oracle, Ace Director, alumni and Grandmaster of Taekwondo. When he's not thinking about data and the cloud, you might find him kayaking lakes and streams, taking foodie pictures, practicing martial arts, volunteering at his local food bank, or just sitting on a beach watching the waves roll in, looking for that next perfect wave. You can follow him on his blog, kentgraziano.com, or on Twitter, at Kent Graziano. Welcome, Kent. Thanks, George. Great to be here. Oh, it's, a, it's an honor to be talking to you. I, I can't believe it. Because I see you everywhere. You're, you're such an important figure within the data world. And I do want to hear more about your story, your background. What got you to where you are right now? Wow. <laughs> where to start? My son's about to graduate from high school. So I now have to start with the story of, I actually started programming my senior year in high school with my math teacher, my calculus teacher, back when data was stored on cassette tape and the machine that I was learning to program basic on, I had to first put a floppy disk in to load the operating system, which was just the basic programming language. Yeah. And then I had to have a different disk to store the program on. And when you turn the computer off, it was all gone. Every time it was gone. So you'd, every time you had to put in, load the operating system, then another disk, if you had written a program to load that in and, and run it. And I, I actually used it to make my homework easier. So I uh, was taking advanced placement chemistry at the time. And so I did two programs, one to calculate the pH of a solution based on, I forget how many variables there were, but there were multiple variables if you had to calculate the third. Mm -hmm. And then the other was, uh, I think the universal gas equation or something like that. And so I figured out I could do multiple variable inputs and write this code. And I just put in the numbers from the problem and I got the answer. And then I didn't have to remember how to do it on my calculator. That's, that's what got me started. In, Did you in, ever have to use punch cards as well? In college, I actually took a sociology class that did uh, population studies. And so I did have to actually use punch cards for that to, I had to actually punch in all the data onto these punch cards and then hand it off to a computer operator that ran the mainframe at the university to run the numbers as it were through uh, yeah. that. I guess that was probably, I hadn't thought about it till just now. That was like early data science. Except that I didn't write the program. Sure. Somebody else wrote the program. I just, mm -hmm. I had, I collected all the data and, mm -hmm. and punched it in on literal punch cards. <laughs> yeah. And I assume there were not such a thing as having a control Z or backspace if you punched it incorrectly. <laughs> no, that was one of the challenges. The other big thing with punch cards is if you drop the stack, if it was a program, then you, you lost your program because it got yeah. the, it got the code out of order. And so you had to be able to keep your cards in the right order if it was executing a series of procedures. So <laughs> thankfully, I didn't have to do that. When I was in university, I did end up programming. I worked in a biochemical research. I guess today we'd call it biomedical because we was doing genetic research. And luckily, I was able to program in basic for that as well. I didn't have to use punch cards. They actually had a, a teletype that I could put programs that I could write programs into to 
help them do some of the calculations that they were doing. It was it basic? It was just basic. I, it was just basic. Yeah. I remember I programmed a little bit in QBasic, which I think it was even more basic than basic. <laughs> yeah, no, this was basic and it was on a, it was a Burroughs, if I remember correctly, it was the mainframe and it, it was basic, but I had to use a Texas Instruments teletype keyboard in order to actually put it in. So yeah, that was my early days. And I, I was actually studying environmental science. I didn't even take any, I didn't study computers in, in college at all, university. It wasn't, there was, they only just barely started having computer science degrees back when I started, but I did it as my side gig. And as they say, then life happened. And I, I ended up getting into databases pretty early on. I learned Fortran from another older gentleman that was my mentor, taught me Fortran after I got out of university. And then I got into, what was it? It was all oh, DBase. DBase was the first database I had, DBase 2, and then RBase, and then got into it, was on a government contract with the Department of Interior and got introduced to Oracle. And that was like 1988 or 89. And as they say, the, the rest is history. And that kind of led to everything that I, I have done in my career. So I just fell in love with the, the database stuff. And then the mid nineties came around and Bill Inman introduced us to data warehousing. I got into data warehousing and business intelligence and said, okay, this is it. This is the thing that's going to be sustainable. I, I, I remember thinking back then it's like, I had designed a lot of OLTP systems at that point in, mm -hmm. in Oracle and mailing lists and mail merges and all kinds of little things, some scientific things, a motor vehicle management system for the government and a couple things like that. But when I got into the data warehousing and the concept of business intelligence, I met Bill and met Claudia Imhoff and I got, got thinking about it. It's like, eventually I'd seen the patterns, you know, HR, GL, all of that stuff is pretty standard. I was eventually there's going to be just a lot of off the shelf packages that do that. There won't be a need to build these custom programs anymore, but every organization is going to need business intelligence. They called it business intelligence at the time. And I can see, yeah, that's not ever going to go away. Once, once organizations get a handle on data and realize what they can do with data. And this was probably 1997, I think. Yeah. 1997 or so. It's like, that's never going to go away. And it's exciting. That's what I'm going to, as they say, hitch my train to, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with this data warehousing stuff because I can see that eventually every organization is going to want it. And we talk about being data driven and it's today, those are like, oh, of course, everybody wants to be data driven. But in the late nineties, people were going, what are you talking about? This data warehousing thing? I just need some reports. And, and back then the internet had just started. And one of the predictions I made back then is that everybody would be doing BI in a browser. And I had no idea what is what's happened now in the last mm -hmm. 25 years. Wow. wow. It's, I, I was right on that one. Yeah. That's where every, we're all doing it. It's all, not only is it in a browser, of course, now it's all in the cloud too. Right? Absolutely. I was going to say back in the nineties, like you said too, um, people and organizations didn't quite understand really the power that data could have on the success of said organization. And I remember it was Clive Humby that, um, was working for the Tesco club membership at that point. And he realized is digging in and doing that data analytics piece or what we now call data analytics 
that they have covered a lot of interesting trends in that data they were capturing on their customers. And then he coined the famous saying, data is the new oil, which was controversial too, but it really just became so, yeah. so uh, famous because it was one of the first examples of how data can be used to be profitable for the business. Yeah, I helped work with uh, Rock Bottom restaurants, Rock Bottom breweries in old Chicago. We're all part of the same group based up in just north of Denver. And old Chicago had their world beer tour mm -hmm. that people would go in because they had all these different, and you, they would track it. And you got a card. And we actually built a system to take all that information and look at how frequently their members were going to old Chicago and trying a new beer. And we built a system that if they hadn't been in two weeks, this is how long ago this was, we printed a postcard with their address on it and mailed them a postcard saying, We're, we miss you. You haven't been here in a while. Here's 10% off your next visit to old Chicago. Come back and see what new brews we have. Nice. Again, late 90s, and that was on Oracle. We did that, built a dimensional model. And I guess that's an early attempt at customer relationship management analytics. And they jumped right on it. We also, every night, we downloaded these flat files from all the rock bottom breweries, all the mm -hmm. restaurants, mm -hmm. and provided the manager back by noon the next day the analytics on what was selling and what wasn't selling off of his menu so that they could determine if they needed to change some of the pricing, if they needed to move things around on the menu, what was moving, what wasn't moving. And that was, that was groundbreaking, I think, because we were doing it, it was less than a 24 hour turnaround to give them basically near real time analytics. And we delivered it up via a web page. We had figured out how to connect. It was Oracle Discoverer. I remember correctly, mm -hmm. how we were able to embed that on a, on mm -hmm. a server that rock bottom owned. And then all the managers got a login and they log in and they saw their analytics that we had processed overnight for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, that, and they could do drill to details and all sorts of things. That, that's such amazing. And I love the fact that they were really open uh, to this type of approach and really have trust in data and the products. And I feel even nowadays where everyone has a piece of technology within their company. They are not, they don't have that appetite to be data driven. They're saying that they want to be data driven, but then they don't really want to invest or they don't trust the data. They don't trust the data analytics team or they don't want to invest into one. What do you think it's what makes the company be data driven? Does it start at the top? Is it that one individual that kind of rings the bell and sets the tone? It, it, it depends on the size of the organization. On the large organizations, for it to really be data-driven, it does have to come from the top. In, in, in recent years, we've had the, I'll say, the invention of the chief data officer concept. Before, you had a CIO, maybe you had a CTO, you had a director of IT. Then eventually, you started seeing directors of analytics and things like that. And then you started getting chief data officers. And so if you've got that as a framework, then the company seems to be willing to make that investment to become data-driven. Somewhere along the line, they, they were convinced, hey, this is what we need to do to be data-driven, and this is going to be a benefit to our organization. In smaller organizations that are maybe a little more old school, it comes from the grassroots, from the, one, of the, one of the new people on the team went to a meetup 
and saw something really exciting at a meetup or attended a webinar or watched a talk like this and said, we, we really need to do something different and start doing a little investigation on their own and goes to their boss and says, Hey, mm -hmm. look what I was able to do with this tool. And, and I took the information that we have over all these spreadsheets. I did this and look at the information, look what we can do with that. And, and that can start building that, that kind of groundswell at, at a grassroots level to push it up and, and start going each manager reporting up to the next level level. And then yeah. eventually these things often evolve where, okay, one group is excelling over a different, another group in their department. And the manager goes like, why are these guys doing so, so much better than these guys? And they all oh, find out they're, they're doing stuff with data, right? Mm -hmm, they're, they're taking mm -hmm. advantage of the data that's out there. Okay. Now we can see a little ROI on this team versus that team. So now you can start building that justification to actually make it more of a corporate thing to say, this is something maybe we should all be trying to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do want to uh, just take a little pause and, and say hello to everybody that's watching live right now. Hi, everybody. There's a lot of people that have joined us for this event. Uh, hi, Mohammed, and hi, um, Vadim, and hi, Andrew, and hi, Nicholas, Mohammed. There are really too many comments to put up. And thank you, everybody, for joining today. And please feel free to share your questions and comments to, to Kent. And I know there are quite a few comments around the different programming languages that were used in the past by different people. So there were quite a few that were, had a relationship with basic. Tom Ives is also wondering if you've used any AWK. Oh, I avoided that one. <laughs> <laughs> I could say it's awk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did actually take a very early Unix class. It was actually taught by AT&T. I actually learned AT&T yeah. Unix at one point and was able to do a little shell scripting early on when we started converting from the database machines, from DOS-based machines to Unix machines, HPs and Suns and things like that. I did have to learn a little bit, but I never got to aux scripting. There you go. So that's how much I knew about it. I didn't even know it was pronounced awk. I spelled it out there. Have you, have you used COBOL? Not really, but I, I, this is one of these bizarre things that used to exist in it. When I worked for the feds before it was the same project I ended up learning Oracle on at one point, they were handing me specs with pre-written code for some COBOL programs that needed to be changed. And I literally had to go into an editor and just copy from the spec exactly the commands and lines that they wanted changed. And it was like editing and then mm -hmm. hit compile. And mm -hmm. if it compiled, then I sent it off to somebody else who then tested it. So I touched COBOL, but it was all done for me. Some analysts had figured out what the command should be, what needed to be changed. I literally was just typing it in and I, I think they now call that CMM level five. It's completely reproducible. Any monkey can do it. Just sit down and type and away, away you go. And it either works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't, then somebody else figures out what's wrong and sends it back to you and said, go in and change it to this. I literally did that in one of my contract jobs. And it was like, that was probably the worst three months of my career. I was so bored. <laughs> Very cool. So let's fast forward a, a few years. And at one point you really expanded the data warehouse knowledge and experience, and you stepped into the cloud as that became available. Uh, did you notice as that service really came to be that, Hey, this can be the next big thing. 
Yeah, I started seeing some early stuff when I was working in the Oracle world with databases as a service and things like that. And I was like, okay, th I think this has possibilities. It, it was a lot of clunky starts though, a lot of clunky mm -hmm. starts. And then I got invited to a, a big data meetup and saw my first presentation on Snowflake and was just completely blown away. At the time, I happened to be working on an agile project for a uh, dairy consortium in the Midwest. And they were, we were trying to build a data warehouse for them on SQL Server. It took six weeks for me to get a login to the database. We pretty much designed the whole thing by the time we got a login. And then I go to this presentation on Snowflake and they say, oh yeah, you push this button on our website. It sends us an email and in 24 hours, you'll have a login. I'm like, say what? And how do I get my space and how many CPUs? Oh, you don't need to allocate any of that. The space allocation is automatic as you, you build your schemas and add tables and add data. It just grabs the space you need, only what you yeah. need, and you get charged for what you need. It's like, really? Because yeah. this other project I was on, the VP, literally the, the first day of the project, he said, how big a machine do I need to buy for this data warehouse? And I was like, I have no idea. I said, how many users do you expect to use this system? A lot. How much data do you have in your source system that we're going to be building this uh, reporting system on? Oh, it's huge. Mm -hmm. Okay. Huge and a lot. Yeah. I, I can't really tell you how big a, a, a server you're going to need. And I said, why? It, it takes six to nine weeks for us to order new hardware. So when I saw this presentation on Snowflake, if I had only known about Snowflake six weeks ago, I would have absolutely been pushing this organization even and Snowflake, it had just, I saw this presentation in August and they just gone GA with the very first version of Snowflake. I think it was mm -hmm. in, in June mm -hmm. of 2015. And I saw this presentation in August, 2015. This is so much better than what we're working with right now. And it was a three month project. We could have done so much more on that project had we been using Snowflake at the time. Um, and, and it was easy to use, spun up. They already had a, a fair number of customers. And it just, I looked at this like, this is going to, like we said, the internet changed everything. It's like, this is going to change everything for Analyte. Being able to do that, I said, I'm really a data architect at this point in my career. I'm like, I do data modeling. I do design. I don't want to do hardware allocation and infrastructure and things like that. I really don't want to do performance tuning. I'm not a database administrator. I don't want to be. It's like mm -hmm. I can, with Snowflake, I looked at that as I can actually go in and design the system that the business needs. And I can design the system that the business needs now, not take five years designing out this massive enterprise thing and going through six month procurement cycles to buy terabytes of data of disk space and figure out is it 16 CPUs or 24? I don't have to worry about any of that. We could start literally today. If I have access to the data, I can start pulling that data in to a system and start deploying easily within a week. And I was like, I was big into agile already. And it's like, this is going to be a game changer. This is going to allow Absolutely. us to really be agile in the data world now. Mohammed is wondering, what is that big difference between Snowflake and Redshift as an example? I think we see this question a lot and it's being 
Google. It's, I think, trending on Google. Oh, my gosh. Where to start? At a very fundamental level, Snowflake was engineered from the ground up from the cloud. They started with zero lines of code, and then Juan Thierry wrote all new code to implement the, the new architecture that would be ideal for the cloud, i.e. the separation of compute from storage. Where Redshift is in the cloud, it started with, I think it was Parexcel, which was an on-prem database. And so they've refactored the code to do some things in the cloud. And I don't know, I haven't kept up with Redshift. At one point, you pretty much, to get the best deal on it, you had to predefine your cluster. You had to say, okay, I want 10 terabytes. And if you want 10 terabytes of data, then you get this many CPUs. If you need mm -hmm. 25, 26 CPUs, then you got this much data and it was tightly coupled and you were locked in. It didn't have the ability to grow and shrink on demand like Snowflake did. And that, that was one of the things that got my attention. It's like, yeah, the fact that I, I could turn it on and off. I only get charged for the compute when I'm using it. I had an automatic suspend. So it's like, you didn't even have to remember to turn it. Yeah. You just turn it on, turn it off. And, and that was a really fundamental difference that I saw between uh, Snowflake and Redshift. And same was true for Azure DW. And BigQuery just had a completely different model on the billing side where right. they were charging for based on the data scanned. So if you ran the same query five times against five terabytes of data, you got charged for scanning five terabytes of data five times. I know all the models have evolved now, but I haven't kept up with, with them. I, you know, I'm just such a snowflake fanboy. I don't know why you would, I don't know why you would do anything else, honestly. <laughs> So now you're a semi-retired Snowflake data cloud evangelist, and it shows that you, you have a lot of passion for it and a lot of support behind you for it. And you've also recently became the advisor for Liftron Data. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. When I announced my retirement from, from Snowflake, uh, you know, people started coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, hey can, can, can you help us? We want your advice. So that was definitely coming up. And I had actually been involved with the folks at Liftron for a couple of years because they were Snowflake partners. And I'd had conversations with them on and off, seen them at some events. And they came and said, we would really uh, like to have you uh, advising us as we evolve our product. And I took a look at it and said, yeah, okay, I'm down with that. I, I got a little, I got a little time on my hands, so I can help you out a little bit. And, and how does Liftron fit in with the Snowflake environment? Yeah, Liftron data is, it's really an end-to-end -end data pipeline tool, as the diagram that you pulled up there. It's able to access on-prem and cloud-based sources. They have over 300 connectors. Wow. that are built into the platform that you just put in the credentials, point it at the source, and then it can start moving that data or just virtualizing it. So it's, it's a combination. It's got a virtualization engine, so you can do some federated queries using ANSI SQL against multiple sources, which is very powerful for, especially for prototyping and being agile to, to see what does that data really look like? What can we do with it? Can we connect the data between the different sources? and build a kind of common semantic layer in the process. But at the same time, it has the ability to build, you know, the data pipelines. If you want to say, persist that data in, you can build that pipeline. They were showing me uh, the other day, a, this, a migration tool that they have that's built into it that will just, just map things one for one from the source 
over to your target. So you can say, I've got, whether it's SAP on-prem or Salesforce or a custom Oracle database or whatever it is, and just map that over to Snowflake and it'll build the pipeline and in native Snowflake code and do push down into Snowflake and move that data for you and, mm -hmm. and move it over, make it very easy to do. So the way I see things now as um, things have accelerated, how, I mean, 300 connectors, that's a lot of different sources. And the reality is I just saw a number that uh, like the average company now has something like 112 sources, which is, is crazy. Yeah. But and you go back to the original principles of data warehousing, what were we trying to do with data warehousing when we called it data warehousing? It's integrating all these different sources so we can get a 360 degree view of our organization's data. So we can be truly data-driven. You can't call yourself data-driven if you actually can't see all your data. And then right. you, you might not have all the information to actually make the right decision. So having a, a, a tool that makes this easy to do for analysts and architects like myself and business analysts that don't have to be expert Java coders or Python coders. And it's really a, a no code or low code environment. A lot of drag and drop, really nice a GUI for, for building these things out. And if you're target Snowflake, well, you don't have to know the native syntax of Snow. Liftron data will generate that. And it's got all the, you know, data type mappings, function mappings to go from standard ANSI SQL to Snowflake SQL and push that down into Snowflake so you're getting the optimal results. Uh, very powerful platform to be able to do that sort of thing and try to be more agile, try to move quicker to get the, the value from your data and, and get people access to it, which is really what it's all about. The mm -hmm. data is no good if people can't get to it. Absolutely. And that's a very good point that you bring up because it used to really be gate kept because of a lack of skills and the complexity of the environment that you had to go through the handful of IT people that were able to help you with it. And there was always a big queue, but I guess that's one of the benefits of the no-code, low-code approach that you can enable other type of users, other type of uh, roles within the company to be able to work with this data and access it and uh, derive value out of it. Yeah, yeah. Ba basically, if you think about the entire value chain of data and you have all kinds of different uh, personas in there, Liftron covers the whole spectrum from source all the way over to data science and analytics on the other end with the connectors on the source side and connectors on the, I'll say the, the reporting side with Jupyter Notebooks, Tableau, all the BI tools that you can really move all that data through and really enable people at each level. And someone's potentially got to define the semantic model. What do we call these things? Mm -hmm. And how do we properly join them together from these multiple sources? Somebody's still got to, mm -hmm. you, you still have to build that. You still have to understand the data, but you don't have to be, like I said, a Python programmer or a Java programmer or anything of that nature to make it happen to do those transformations. And let's say you have the benefit of the virtualization engine that you can define that business semantic model and start off with everything where it is. So your analysts and your business SMEs can look at it and go, yeah, that's the data we need. That's let's make this thing uh, a little more robust. Let's make it, uh, let's curate it a little bit more. And we want to store it over in say Snowflake. Um, and so you can take a nice, agile, incremental approach uh, to exploration, discovery, 
and figure out what all the business rules are and, and putting it all on this platform and have the platform generate the code for it. Right, right. Uh, Kirk here is saying that you really provide a great intro to Liftron data and the opportunity to explain Liftron data and its benefits over traditional ETL tools. What what are you seeing there in terms of ET, the traditional ETL <laughs> versus Def Liftron data? Uh, over the last, you know, since I joined Snowflake in 2015, <clears throat> definitely seeing a migration away from not only traditional ETL tools, but ETL concepts to what we've tended to call ELT, but now people tend to call it data engineering more so. It's right, this uh, mm -hmm. idea of we, instead of taking the data from the source and in you know, the traditional world that I started out in, in data warehousing, we talked about cleansing and scrubbing the data before we put it in the data warehouse. That meant we pulled the data out of a source and applied a bunch of rules to it Sometimes it was to turn it into a third normal form. Sometimes it was turning it into dimensional models, whatever it was, and then putting it into the platform that was our data warehouse, whether it was Oracle or Teradata or SQL Server. And that's the only thing anybody ever saw. So if you went in there and you did your analysis, this is just not right. Mm -hmm. You know, how did you, how did you, where did these numbers come from? Oh, we did all these calculations and all this stuff over here. What does the original data look like? Oh, we, we can't tell you. We can go back and look at the source system. Oh, wait, it's been overwritten in the source system since we did that last load, hasn't it? And so there were some definite drawbacks to that. Over time, you got, I'll say, Inman's Corporate Information Act Factory architecture, and then uh, Dan Lindstedt's Data Vault architecture. We started talking about having staging areas on the platform. So you're going to load the raw data on the platform. Then we're going to curate it and apply business rule and turn it into something that the end users can use. And I'll say more of a, a conformed semantic model. Right. And over time, people were doing that with ETL tools. And it's okay, we, we're going to take the data, we're going to put it over into Oracle, and then we're going to pull it out into the ETL server again, do some stuff to it and stuff it into a data vault and then pull it out again and stuff it into a dimensional model. And it's like, wow, that's really inefficient. We've moved mm -hmm. the data now three times to get to the final answer. So how about we keep it in the platform and use something, oh, I don't know, native SQL, if it's a relational database, something else, if it's no SQL or if it was Hadoop, and let's do the transformations, you know, leave the data where it is and not keep pulling it out into other servers that might become bottlenecks. So you got a lot of bottlenecks there. So trying to get down to less than a 24 hour refresh was virtually impossible, right? Mm -hmm. And over the last decade, the demand for near real time data has dramatically increased. Mm -hmm. Being able to stream data in, I don't know if we're ever gonna get to real time because what's real time is by the time it's moved, it's no longer the same time. So mm -hmm. it's, I always think if it's all really, the best you're gonna get is near real time. The question is how quick? But if you can keep it in a platform like Snowflake, where you're just moving the data from a staging area to uh, a curated area and applying some transformations along the way using the engine itself, you're not having to pull the data out and move it, that gets you a lot of efficiencies. And so mm -hmm. I've definitely seen, seen the move towards that. A Snowflake introduced streams and tasks for doing things right in the database engine. Liftron's generating native uh, Snowflake code to move the data and do transformations in there. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot more of that. I'll say DBT is a very popular data engineering tool. 
and people were doing really, it, it's mostly tea, right? It's it, the extract and load has almost become commodity, right? Of how do you get it from the source? The Liftron's got that built into the platform of with all those connectors. So, so you don't even have to think about it now. It's like, guess point, this is what I want. Put in the credentials. Okay, let's build the tables, move them over or just put views on top of them, virtualizing. So that balance between persistence and virtualization is the virtualization allows people to be more agile. Persistence allows us long-term to be more efficient in my mind. So there's a good, there's a good marriage there. And it, it's a kind of a, it's a progression on how you build out your platform and where you're starting from. If you're starting completely greenfield, trying to migrate to the cloud, trying to do that incrementally. Okay, let's start with this. Let's look at it. Let's build a semantic model that the business understands, and then we'll start persisting it. But definitely moving away from traditional e e ETL. There's a couple of vendors out there that I, I have worked with that I have counseled a couple of times. They keep calling their product an ETL tool. And it's like, mm -hmm. stop saying ETL. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not doing extract, transform, and then load. Mm -hmm. We're really, we're doing extract, load, and then transform. But we're even doing it to the point of we're doing extract, load, persist, transform, persist, or we may virtualize that. There's enough power in the cloud now that you don't always have to persist the final report format. Absolutely. You, you can put, you can use views back to the original concept of views. View is a virtual table. That's what view was, right? Why not do that? Let's get the data, get all the data we need. Different consumers of the data have different forms that are going to make sense to them. The way the data scientist wants to see the data versus the way a Tableau analyst wants to see the data is very different, but it's the same data. So mm -hmm. why copy it five times and, and make it look different? Why can't we just use views to make it look different? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. As long as you can get the performance, that's the key, right? Can we get the performance? Absolutely. Brian Smith has a good question here that data virtualization is so powerful and freeing. Why do you think it hasn't gained more traction at more organizations? I assume one of the reasons is they haven't found about Liftron data yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's been in many cases, it's quite costly. And I'll say the older non-cloud-based virtualization engines require a server, just like it's all Conceptually to me, it's no different than the ETL tools that had to have an ETL server is you can get bottlenecked by the size of the server and you can end up having to spend, if you want to get the throughput and the speed at massive scale, they just couldn't handle it. You'd have to have just such a big server and so much memory uh, for them to do that. Having the ability to do things in the cloud makes that a lot easier. And, and some of it honestly is just old school thinking. Yeah. There's uh, this industry has been around for, you know, three plus decades now. And some people get very entrenched in the way they've been doing things and need to, uh, as my, my friends from red pill analytics say, you know, take the red pill, open your mind, see beyond the matrix, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, we don't have to keep doing things the way we've been doing them for the last 30 years. That's the biggest thing that people have to really get their minds, literally get their minds wrapped around is this feels wrong mm -hmm. that I'm not able mm -hmm. to tune the sequel in Snowflake. Mm -hmm. Well, why does it feel wrong? Because that's what I've done for the last 25 years. Why? Be well, because I had to. Okay, we'll get past that. Just try it. 
and you'll find out you don't you don't need to tune the SQL. And so the fact that there's no indexes and no index hints is irrelevant now. Mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. just that's a bit of knowledge that you don't need to know anymore. You can the question is what data does the business need? What value does this data have? And how fast can I get this data to the business people so mm -hmm. that they can be data driven rather than well, I gotta, it's gotta be modeled this way and I have to have these indexes and I need to know what the query pattern is to make sure that they get it fast enough and old thinking. You gotta, you gotta move forward and take advantage of all the power that's in the cloud. Absolutely. Everyone loved your answer. Amen. Uh, to that. Shamu <laughs> <laughs> is wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the data governance data sharing data catalog features of Liftron data, because it's not just about the data virtualization piece. Do you see this as the, these types of services will be a little bit more integrated within the, the data fabric platform? They have to be. We have to get there. If you can't govern the data, and share the data and find the data, mm -hmm. then what good is it? And this, the old days of, yeah, we, we load the enterprise IT department. We loaded all this data into the platform, have at it. And everybody's like, okay, now what do we do with it? Where did that data come from? How do we find the data? What data is even there? So you, you, you've got to have those, those capabilities on the governance to, to apply masking rules, the data sharing component. So especially if you're in the virtualization, to be able to go in and invite to see the data and, and be able to access data in a semantic way across multiple sources without the end user even needing to know where that data is. And those capabilities are in Liftron to do that, to invite someone that sends them an email, gives them a link and then they can see the data. And on the catalog side, you know, they have a universal search engine. You go in and looking for customer invoices and it will show you everywhere customer invoice data is available within the platform. It's all there. And I, like I said, I think in the end, you know, whether Liftron's put it all in one platform, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it really is, it's an end-to-end -end environment mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. work out of, which is very convenient and useful. And again, as we said, no code, load code type environment makes it easier for people to do things. And I, th I think we've got it. We've got to get there. If the data is not discoverable, then how do people get value out of it? Absolutely. We have a question here that I want to bring up from Andrew Jones of Data Science Infinity. And he's saying that you've got so much experience, but what is something that really blows your mind about the world of data today? The thing that blows my mind, it's back to Snowflake, the data cloud concept of having, and Benoit coined this particular phrase, I believe he calls it the World Wide web of data. And when he said that, it was like the light bulb went off in my head too. It's, okay, that's the best way to explain the data cloud. Yeah, being able to share data easily between organizations, between consumers and data providers it, via a, an app store for data, which is basically the Snowflake data marketplace, or do it in a private exchange. That, that blows me away because I remember back very early days, late 90s, attending Bill Inman's talks and talking about the value of third-party data. And it's really been a decades long dream of data warehouse, if you will, professionals 
wanting to augment their analytics with third-party data, which meant data outside our organization, data that that's not coming from our source systems. And it just, I've seen it take off in the last three years since the data cloud's been introduced of, yeah, this really is valuable. Organization A has data that will be useful for my analysis and we can have a business relationship, get that. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, lots of free data out there uh, that various organizations provide. Weather data, turns out weather data is, wow, is that a hot commodity? So many businesses are affected by the weather. Everybody goes, well, yeah, of course. Wouldn't it be great if you could actually look at the weather patterns and look at your business patterns and see what the correlations really are? Mm -hmm. And then be able to see what the weather forecast is and start predicting what's going to happen with your business or what you need to do. Swimming pool is an easy example for, for me is if there's a thunderstorm, what happens in an outdoor swimming pool? They blow the whistle and close it down so nobody gets hit by lightning. I mean, that's like a life and death thing, actually. And so think of that in a broader scale to all kinds of businesses, to supply chain, to outdoor restaurants, to concert venues. How could their businesses run differently and how can that affect their customers if they have easy access to that kind of information in a near real-time way? It's, it is truly mind-blowing. Absolutely. And lastly, as we're coming to an end here, Case Strajny is mentioning that Data Warrior sounds like a great role to have. How did you get that moniker, the Data Warrior? I was in was it 2009, 2010, I uh, decided to go independent. And uh, first off, my wife said, you've got to have a blog. You're already a writer. Blogs are the way to go. And it's okay, what, what am I going to call my blog? And I, I, had, I had a friend at the time, I still know him, Chet Justice over in Florida, who had given himself the moniker of Oracle Nerd. It's like, okay, that one's taken. And, and so I got thinking about it. At the time, it started off as the Oracle Data Warrior, and Claudia Imhoff eventually convinced me to drop the Oracle part because what I know went way beyond Oracle. But the it, data had to be in the title because I'm a data guy. But the warrior part comes from my martial art mm -hmm. and the warrior mindset, the way the I approach, yeah, the Taekwondo is the way I approach data. It's, it's head on, we're going to do something with this. And we call it the warrior mindset is there is no failure. We're all about success. We are going to work hard, perseverance, indomitable spirit. And that's me, the data warrior. Love it. Well, you heard it from the data warrior himself. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us and all your questions and feedback and comments. My apologies for not getting to all of them, but hope to see you next time. Thank you so much, Kent. You're welcome. Bye, everyone.